But for me, it was like coming from the charismatic thing where everything is big, is go hard, go big, change the world, big, important, big, important, climb the mountain, save the world, do the thing, meet the God, like ride the wave, gold teeth, uh, power, lightning, rage like thunder, like preach the preach the pain off the walls and bring the power. It was like, oh, it, it was so, it was such a relief for me to learn how to be found in between those places. I'm so excited to be joined today by platinum selling songwriter and artist John Mark McMillan. I've been a fan of John Mark's work for many years now, and though we've had a a few passing interactions and back and forth on social media and just a, a couple of face-to-face exchanges. This is really the first time I've really had the opportunity to have an extended conversation with John Mark, and it was such a delight. So I hope you enjoy today's conversation with John Mark McMillan. Well, I am so excited to be joined today by John Mark McMillan. You know, I've had a couple of just limited, maybe like Twitter interactions with John Mark. And actually, you probably don't remember this because you meet like a million people on tour. There's, I've actually had a couple of face-to-face interactions with you. You probably don't recall. <laughs> Once was uh, with Andy Kurzweig backstage at when you came to the Twin Cities here. And then uh, I think last fall down at the, I always forget what the United Pursuit Festival thing is that they call it. Um, you know what I'm talking about, the tent and... Yep. Yeah. The, the homecoming. homecoming. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man, that was like, uh, I've seen you a couple of times and that was probably one of the more magical experiences. Uh, did you feel that way too? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. That was a beautiful night. Um, I think, you know, sometimes it's funny. Sometimes, like, it's really about the audience. Like, they kind of draw something out of you sometimes that you don't know you have, you know. And I think it was just one of those nights. There's a culmination of things. Um, it, it was a different scenario. We'd been on tour for, you know, like a month. And so this is the last date. So everyone is stoked, you know. We're not thinking about the songs anymore, you know. Like, at first you think about the songs. You're like, I got to make sure I remember this. Then after you play it, you know, two or three nights, you're like on autopilot in a good way because then you can focus on, you know, like connecting with the audience, connecting with one another. And the 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 basics, the basic musical things you don't have to think much about. Or you add a little thing here or there. So it's sort of like we weren't thinking about the music. We were thinking about you know, bigger things than the music. Um, and and then the crowd was just really, really awesome. Um, they just seemed excited. And it was just a fun night. I, I tried some new things I hadn't done before. I told some stories and stuff like that. And it was really, really magical. I don't know. I, I try and figure those things out, but sometimes you can't. Yeah, it's best not can, sometimes, right? sometimes right? <laughs> No, but there yeah. was. I remember that. And a couple of things that stood out to me about that night was, I mean, you guys did this, you know, did the songs that I think by and large part I'd seen you do on a previous stop. But there were some moments there that reminded me, I think, of some of our, perhaps our shared spiritual Christian background that I wanted to start off talking to you about because I, I've been yep. following your music, I think, I mean, 
I think my first um, introduction to you was actually via MySpace. <laughs> All right, <laughs> you were you were on you were on some mutual friends top ten friends, which I can't imagine that thing. You know, can you imagine people trying to do that today? Like you're gonna make you know my top ten you know Instagram friends, and then you get cut from the team, oh, and how man. how much drama that would create. But um, I'm pretty certain we've got some some fairly similar charismatic circles that we've occupied in our younger years. How was your church experience mm-hmm. similar and maybe in some ways different from what we might consider a typical evangelical experience for a kid in the 80s, 90s, and in the early 2000s? Yep. So I, I split up my young spiritual history into sort of three phases, right? So... When I was young, my parents lived on a Christian community, um, just kind of a Jesus, you know, movement style, you know, kind of hippie vibes. There was a farm. Some people worked on the farm. Um, it wasn't full on a commune, and my parents would argue that it wasn't a commune, but we all lived on the farm together. And we had, you know, weekly meetings and revival type meetings that went hours and hours and hours. And, you know, uh, there were animals and, you know, (laughs) all the pictures look like everything you can imagine. Ladies in the long, you know, tie-dye skirts and sometimes the men are wearing overalls and hats and... You know, it was Jesus movement style, I would, I would call it, you know. That, that was my, um, my, my first experience. And then my, you know, that thing kind of fell apart. My parents, I think, my parents thought they were going to be with that group of people till Jesus came back, you know, riding on the horse and bust through the sky. And they're all, you know, like they were there until the bitter end, right? And, um, and then things didn't work out, you know, and... Uh, and so my parents moved and they stayed in contact with a lot of these people, but the community didn't continue, you know, um, I don't, I was too young to really know what happened. I, I don't feel like there was some sort of major scandal or anything like that. You know, I, I just know people and people are, (laughs) people really suck at being together, you know, like, um, but you know, so you can imagine late night worship you know, uh, barns and people singing and a million acoustic guitars. And, you know, people would prophesy from the crowd. Anyone who felt like they should speak would, and they'd walk up to the microphone at any moment. And, you know, and it was sort of like if you had a prophecy, you were to stand up and deliver it in that moment and you were possessed by the spirit. And, you know, so that was my early experience. Then towards the late 80s, early 90s, my dad, uh, started a church on his own. Um, he took over a little church from a friend of his uh, at a little storefront in a community just outside of Charlotte called Pineville. So he had a little storefront church. I don't know that it ever got above a couple hundred, 300 people or something like that. Um, just non-denominational. Um, similar in the vibe of, you know, charismatic. We had like, you know, worship choruses and a band and... Um, uh, but, but, you know, then, um, you know, if I'm honest, what really happened with the church is a bigger church, you know, really sort of started in the same part of town and, um, the church began to shrink and my dad doesn't talk much about this. And I don't know that he ever said this to me, but I feel I could read between the lines. I feel like he saw his thing going away, you know, and it was already very small and you know how church is, which as a side, 
As a side, as a pastor's kid, I think it's really funny when people talk about pastors doing it for the oh, money. Man. Yeah, right. You know, I'm yeah, like, I'm a pastor. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> <It's not that. laughs> I was, you know, like, yeah, I know. It's, it's kind of like, um, yeah, I, that's always funny to me when people talk about pastors doing it for the money. But, you know, he wasn't doing it for the money, but I think he saw his thing was not going to survive. Um, and I think he, he got another opportunity that he was excited about. So I think it was a difficult season, but he ended up uh, becoming a pastor at a very large ministry. Um, I don't know that I call it a mega church. It was mega in the sense of like big church conferences. Uh, people moved from all over the country to be there. They had a big, you know, ministry school. Um, they had famous pastors come through and preach, you know, and is you know, sound system and the big band, you know, it was not like mega churches today, um, you know, but it was very mega in. Yeah. In well, I'm very sense, familiar you know? with it. Someone, um, someone very early on, you know, <laughs> in my, my college years, you know, and I was, at, I grew up in a charismatic church too, but you know, the pre-internet world mm. was so different. You just had no, it was no connection to the world outside of your local church, especially if you were non-denominational, which None. our church was growing up too. Yeah. But I had started getting in, you know, my my college years, started getting into Upton, Jason Upton, and then someone handed me this CD that said like Braveheart on it. And I was like, man, I love that movie Braveheart. I'll give this a listen. And the songs were like 25 minutes long. And the, you know, the musicianship was just top notch. Um, so I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I'm, I think you're referring to that place, right? <laughs> Leonard oh, Jones def- and yeah, yep, Don Potter. Yep, yep. That one hundred percent. That was that's it. pretty formative yep. place to grow and, up. Or I mean, how old were you at this point? Oh, in, insanely formative. I'm trying to remember when my dad ended up going over uh, to he when he came on staff at Morningstar. Uh, I was in my teens. I'm trying to remember if it's more like 15, 16, something like that, um, 15, 16 years old. And I ended up graduating high school not long after he, um, you know, went over there. And I, had, I actually went to ministry school there for a while. Um, and I was actually on staff there for a couple of years um, as a youth pastor. I'm like the worst youth pastor <laughs> in the history of all youth pastors. But, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Oh man, I lost Wait, my train so of you, thought. So you're there. <laughs> you this, got me thinking. Yeah. You got me reminiscing. No, no, that's good. I want to do some reminiscing here because this is kind of like part of this yeah, is yeah. your journey, and your journey is shaped like who you are. And I think there's something valuable for mm-hmm. people to learn from your story. So yeah, you're here at this totally. conference retreat center church, you know, yep. and the musicianship, the music is the main course, right? You know, that that's another thing that might oh, be yeah. different, like um, for a typical evangelical kid's experience, 80s, 90s, early 2000s, like some of that stuff, you know, I think not a lot of people realize how much of the music that happens in evangelical settings today is all born in the charismatic movement and the Jesus people movement, in the, you know, the vineyard stuff. And then, mm-hmm. you know, you get into, it's not that everybody today could could tell you, have any clue who a guy like Kevin Prosh or Leonard Jones or Don Potter is, but mm-hmm. most of the stuff people are listening to, the people that are making that knew who those yep. guys were. And you were right there in that sort of epicenter where music, totally. music really is the main 
the yeah. main course, right? So that might be different than most people's evangelical experiences. What what might be some other things like you're in, you know, you've talked about obviously like, you know, nobody called it a commune, but quasi commune living, you know, that's that's not normal. Mm-hmm. You know, non-denominational storefront church that might not be typical for people. And now you're at this place mm-hmm. where the, the songs you know, you might have one song easily go for 25, 35 minutes, but there's probably some other things easily. happening too. Like what might be some other things that would set apart your experience of church from maybe, you know, just you might consider just a a general evangelical kid. Yeah. Well, so later on, um, the the church, uh, Morningstar, ended up purchasing the hotel, the old PTL hotel. And, uh, you know, and I remember thinking, this is awesome. That's my first thought. This is so awesome. Because I love the community. I love being around all the people. It was so much fun. All these people, and you kind of live there. And, you you know, like, it was like, um, it was like your first year in a dorm at college, I guess, you know, like, just all these people, you know, and you're meeting people from all over the world. And so we first were there. I was like, oh, this hotel, this place is huge. This is exciting. Then it's like, how are they going to renovate this whole thing? And then it's like, I don't know if they can. Like, it, it, it maintained this sort of 80s vibe no matter what you did because it was so big, you know. It was such a, like, it was like being in another world, you know. And so the church met in a hotel that they owned, and there were always people staying there. Um, and and I, I think that was very different. Most people, like, you know, you go to church, and there were people living there. That's different. You know, at church. You know, I, I don't think, I mean, I never lived at church, but. There are people actually living at church, you know? And then there are these different movements that would come and stay on the property. We had like this one connected to the Kansas City House of Prayer, the call and those types of organizations came through and they would actually live there and you never knew what was going on. (laughs) It was pretty exciting as a kid. Like, I have no idea what's gonna happen. I know there's music playing somewhere and there's something interesting happening somewhere. And, you know, I felt pretty safe, to be honest. You know, like... I know there's a lot of bad things that can happen in church and you hear all these stories, but at the same time, like I still think church is safer than yeah. the mall. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And I think the reason I think maybe bad things happen in church is because you feel safe and anywhere you feel safe, there's an opportunity for someone to be taken advantage of. I mean, that's another story altogether, but as a whole, it was pretty exciting and super weird. I think some people would have been really uncomfortable if I'd have just brought, and honestly, that's that's one of the beginnings of why I ended up leaving. I was like, how can I be a part of a church that I can't bring one of my friends yeah, to? Yeah, were you concerned maybe that you know, you it's know, like, a friend would come and they'd see someone dancing with like a broadsword or something, you know, or, a, you know. <laughs> oh, not, they would see that. Yeah. I wasn't afraid. Right. Like, I knew they would <laughs> right. see that. You know, or someone would get up and talk about, um, Oh my gosh, you know, um, feathers right. falling, clouds, and, and yep. teeth, and did, the Did you guys ever have a, the, and, the, I mean, the toking the ghost stuff happen there? or That never, like, that was on the peripherals, but that never happened okay. specifically. Yep. I feel like that was a little bit more the yeah, younger generation than the leaders yeah. who were at our thing, you know, but definitely the mm-hmm. same kind of stream, you know. So what did you, you know, you've... This is a unique experience. It's so normal for me. You know, I joke with some <laughs> friends of ours that grew up, they live here in the Twin Cities too, and they grew up in a very similar context. And it's like, neither mm-hmm. one of us blinks twice at the thought of a sword being in worship. I mean, isn't that so weird? 
<laughs> you know, I like know. I've seen people bring, they have like, <laughs> you know, shofar gig bags, you know, that they, they keep their shofar oh, yeah. in. And I, I don't think twice about, you know, someone with like a big Israel flag dancing in worship, you know, but oh, yeah. now I'm in a, a really old church. I'm on staff. It's 140 years old. It's just, you know, kind of a down the center evangelical church. There's no way. And like, none of these people have seen 95% of the things that I've seen, but yet, you know, guys like you and other people have seen these things. And I'm curious, you know, being in that particular context, these charismatic contexts, what would be one positive story of something you'd say, wow, I don't know if I'd ever seen God this way if I wouldn't have been in these circles. Totally. Well, the one of the beautiful things about the way I grew up is that God was communicated to me as being close, you know, and, and that's where the whole like personal relationship language comes into play, you know, but God was communicated as being very, very close. And, you know, like I, I spent so much time in church and I was so um, engulfed by this subculture. I didn't spend a lot of time outside of my sort of charismatic experience. And this is like, and, and as you and I talk, you understand this is a little bit more extreme than even the Definitely. typical charismatic experience, I, I think. Um, but like my friends who went to like Baptist and Methodist and, um, you know, Presbyterian churches, especially like when I would, you know, I'd go to their like lock-ins or their youth group retreats and stuff. You know, like I thought it was really interesting. Like those kids never wanted to talk about God. Like, I don't even think the youth pastors want to talk about God. It was like, you know, and this is my very limited experience. It was like, well, all right, you guys have had fun. I'm going to make sure you guys know where you're going when you die, and then we'll get back to ping pong, <laughs> you know? When's pizza like, coming? And I, I know, and it was yeah. a lot of fun, but, you know, God was, like, communicated as being very, very distant and sort of like, all right, guys, we got to talk about God, but let's get through this quick because it's going to be painful. As in... You know, my experience was like, we celebrated God, you know, we celebrated. And then it got weird for sure. But it was sort of like worship was a celebration. The reason worship went a long time is because it was like, we're having fun. We are enjoying this, you know, expression, this experience, yeah. you know. Um, and it really, like when I first started leading worship, I would get asked to go to, you know, do retreats, um, you know, do the retreats or plant conferences or events, youth events at sort of different organizations. They'd be like, okay, what songs are you going to play? And I'm like, I don't know. And they're like, well, okay, well, when you know, let us know. And the day after, like, you never sent us the songs. And we're thinking, we'll play two songs and then stop. And someone's going to come up and say this. And I was like, what? I was like, no, we're, <laughs> we're going to start. And then at some point we're going to stop, <laughs> you know? Yep, man. Oh, gosh. And I got to the point, I remember, I remember having conversations where I was like, I was like, you cannot come up and talk during my set. Like, you can't. <laughs> I was like, and I'm not, I'm not refusing. I'm just saying, like, this is what we do. And if you want what we do, we're cool to do it. But just, you know, like, let us do it. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, there's a point where I think I was pretty arrogant, you know, but I mean, you know, I was young. Young people yeah. can be well, and that's arrogant. that's the thing that you've seen and you yeah. felt like has worked, you yeah. know. And to be in a different context, yeah. it's uh, it's 
like, well, I'm just going to, this is, yeah. this is the sling that I have, right? I'm not going to put on yep. Saul's armor. Yep. Uh, boy, I remember those days. It's so hard <laughs> to imagine now, but showing up at a place and like, we never put lyrics up on a screen either. That was just, mm-hmm. if we even had lyrics that we all sang together, there was just so much you were going after spontaneity, spontaneity. So mm-hmm. that sense that God is here, God is now, you know, this is, um, using theological terminology, I think charismatics, the one, the one thing as a positive in the charismatic and Pentecostal traditions is the sense that the kingdom is here now, right? And it's not a yeah. future thing mm-hmm. that we have to wait for in the sweet by and by. Mm-hmm. The downside, the, the strength is also the weakness too, right? And the weakness yeah. has been in context where, you know, the theological term would be the, an over-realized eschatology. All that means is to say, we think the kingdom is here now, it's here now, here, here now. And we've got no room for the possibility that the kingdom might not fully be here in ways like, you know, what do you, what do, you do in those spaces, John Mark, where, you know, you were maybe yeah. 18, 19 years old and you believe God is present in the room with you and you've seen miraculous things happen. But I, I think about times where I was that age too and we're like, God is here, God is here. But then there's this guy in this wheelchair. He's been in his wheelchair his whole life. Mm-hmm. You know, and what are we maybe mm-hmm. saying to him? You know, we're like, everything's going to get better right now. Um, I had to imagine how at times hurtful that would be, which gets me to kind of like the flip side. So, you know, you, you live with this sense that God really wants to commune with you and you can really commune with God. Mm-hmm. Not that I don't think anybody in my context ever called it this, but, you know, you could say the mystical experience is always available mm-hmm. to you in a way that maybe other traditions don't have. But there's also maybe some deficiencies or um, possible weaknesses. Did you experience things? Did you feel like there were some things that created cognitive dissonance for you that you saw as deficiencies or weaknesses or maybe even experienced some hurtful things that that created existential questions for you? Well, yeah, there definitely... Definitely. And, you know, um, gosh, there's so many things. I I think one of the, one of the primary things that I think, um, and maybe there's this issue in other sort of streams as well, but this sort of like this weird honor culture, you know, where it's sort of like there's, you, you revere your leader's as though they're, you know, saints or or God themselves. You know what I mean? And there's this very upward relating culture where even to talk about a leader was sort of like people would get a little bit squirmy. Like, I don't know if you should say that. Be like, I think what he's saying, I don't think I agree with it. It was sort of like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, though I never had any major issues. No one ever, like I, I didn't personally have like a run-in with somebody. But there was just this field that culture was fit. Like, I thought that my leaders were hearing directly from God. Let me put it that way. I was like, I can't disagree with him because I literally thought they're in their room seeing God. Like, I literally thought God was literally appearing to them and talking to them. And I thought, well, one day I'll be there too, but right now I'm not, so I have to trust them. And then things didn't add up. Like, it really seems to be like a bad idea. This seems to be like a really bad decision for someone who hears God all the time. It's like... Yeah, you know, like little things. Like, don't they realize? Like, they're saying this, but like, do they understand how that sounds? And 
they're making some really bad decisions. And then two of the God-ordained people would disagree with one another. There'd be a big split and be like, oh, crap. One of these people isn't really hearing from God. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, so that, I think, that may be more, con- that may be common in a lot of areas, but I think one thing that you don't have is this sort of, this man of God thing, you know, where it's like you can't question the man of God because they are hearing directly from God, and you're not hearing from God, and we are, so you really need to get on board with what we're doing. You know, and there, there are a lot, you get a lot of arguments, and then people, it would trickle down, people like, well, God told me to do this. I'd be like, well, that sounds like a really <laughs> bad idea. Sounds like really bad. They're like, yeah, but this is because God is testing my faith. Yeah. The goalposts you know? can always move, right? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. Maybe God is testing your faith by asking you to like work hard and be a good steward and treat your family well. Maybe that's a good that's a test. Maybe the test isn't like how long you can live without a job. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Or maybe the test isn't like waiting on this girl you've never had a conversation with to decide to marry you. Maybe that's not the test. Maybe... Yep. You know, like those kind of things were so common. I know several people who got married, they're like, God told us to get married and just literally go out and get married. Some of those marriages lasted. Some of them were healthy, but a lot of them did not last. Some of them didn't last even very long, you know, as you can imagine. Um, but all, there's a lot of that kind of thing going on, you know. And, and I think the frustrating thing for me is like I really wanted to hear from God. You know, and like the like you mentioned, the person in the wheelchair, everyone's hearing from God and God's doing miracles. He's not doing one for you, you oh. know? And I think it's easy when you're 18, 19 years old, at least for me, like death didn't exist to me as an 18 or 19 year old. Like literally like there was an infinity between me and death. So as far as I knew, God was gonna heal everybody eventually, right? Like I, I didn't have all these like, you know, thoughts about what does it mean to be a Christian if you're in the wheelchair and um, you never get healed and you you die without doing the thing that you dreamed of because you were hurt, you know, in a car accident or something, you know. Um, but yeah, like, so it, it was really, um, it, it took me years to sort of like process a lot of that stuff, you know. And it took me a while even to say like, oh, it's cool if I think that this is totally not the Lord. You know, this is not God. But that's a big part of my, you know, if you want to call it deconstruction, was I first had to let go of like, okay, all these people that I love and respect who treated me very well, to be honest. Like, no, I was not mistreated, you know? Like, I really wasn't. Um, but all these people who treated me really well and seemed to be really kind to me also... Um, made a lot of unwise decisions at times. And I had to be okay with saying, okay, maybe they don't really hear from God. Maybe they're trying, but like, I don't know why it has to be communicated in this language where like, oh, I heard from Lord. The animating power that, you know, brought man out of the dust is talking to me. You know, and I'm not even against that. I like the idea that God wants to commune, commune and have community and but man, that kind of thing, like I, that over authoritarian vibe, like I, I'm really, I really have a problem with that to this day. I think, based on sort of the culture I grew yeah, up I'm, in. Yeah, I'm very familiar with what you're talking yeah. about. I remember being yeah. in I was some a lot of the same overlapping circles, say circa 2006 to 2010. You know, I started to maybe move 
out of just exclusively occupying those spaces around 2012. And I, I don't carry like bitterness or animosity towards anybody, but there were some there were some questions there. You know, questions like you experienced the cognitive dissonance over something simple. And it's not really um I try to explain this to most people because they go, well, was it, you know, was it a particular like point of doctrine? And I was like, no, no, it's like exactly what you're saying where somebody would say something. And I remember specifically around like election season 2008. And I started mm. realizing that these yeah. guys and gals couldn't differentiate. They're like hearing from the Lord with their Republican allegiance. And I'm not like a Democrat. I'm mm-hmm. not a Republican. I, I don't, I don't, I don't have yeah. a team in this, but I, I could. I could notice that, like, man, why is it that every prophetic word about if the government doesn't do this just so happens to also fit Fox News? And, uh, you know, I noticed Mm -hmm. it, and I was like, oh, that's... And so things like that. Well, and honestly, when I ultimately bailed, you know, and maybe that's a harsh word, but when I sort of decided, like, okay, it's time for me to figure out a new expression... Still don't know what that new expression is, by the way. Yeah, me both. <laughs> figuring it out, right? But, you know, I was like, it's time for a new expression. It was really like, and it, I think I, I, my wife and I were having kids. We had our son. And all of a sudden, I'm like, I'm having all these, like, grown-up problems, you know? Like, um, like you know, I've got to pay the bills, and I've got this child, and, like, i got to figure out how to treat my wife better. I've got to figure out how to be a good steward, but not work so hard that I never spend any time with my family. I got to figure out how to raise my son. And every day I'd go to church and all they would talk about was Obama. And I was like, I was like, I don't care. I was like, when have I ever cared, you know, about Obama? And, you know, I could suffer through one, but then it was like literally politics dominated Sunday morning, legitimately. And I was like, I... You know, I don't like abortion either. I was like, but like, I just don't know, you know, if I can sing enough songs to end abortion this Sunday, you know, like I need to figure out how to raise my living child, my child, you know, that I, I didn't mean, I, I drew a little no, conclusion no, no. there. I didn't no. mean to, I don't mean, I, I mean, my, not my living child because unborn children are, li- are alive, but my child who is yeah. here in front of me and my wife who is here in front of me, it's sort of like, I need help learning how to be a Christian in my everyday life. And and maybe that sort of like is sort of the statement, right? It was sort of very difficult to know how to be an everyday believer. Um, in those environments, everything was about big time. Everything was about the end of the world. Everything was about world changing. You're a world changer. You're a world shifter. You're a um, you're a history maker. You're a, you know, yeah. I'm like, well, yeah. I... I don't want to make history. Like, I just want to make a great family. No, I did. I did want to <laughs> make know? history when I, I was single. I wanna... and, but then I, I know, realized exactly. when my kids were born how hard it was just to not be a jerk to them and my wife. You know? I think exactly. For, I think for exactly. me, I've, I've shared this with other people too. I talked about it with, you know, mutual friend Adam Russell on on his podcast. But, you know, I think I started to realize that I, I had... Um, the formation, the formation of the spiritual formation that had been shaped in me in much of these atmospheres was so much about, yes, God was here and now, but it was also like God was here to take you out of here. You know, it was like, how can you mm-hmm. have the experience where you can get a vision of heaven, where you can go to the mm-hmm. throne room, transcendence, 
transcendence. Yep. And then like the mission was how do we get everybody else to have that same thing? So we got to bring them here to like take them up somewhere. And I, I shared this with Adam. Yep. I think I did. I don't know. I've talked about this so many times, but a movie that totally wrecked me. It was like around 2011. I watched Terrence Malick's Tree of Life. Have you ever seen that film? You got to. I should. Yeah, you got to see it. Yeah. And I, I cried through the whole thing because mm. it, it, somehow I saw they tell this story of a, a family. I think probably in the 1950s, and somehow Malick communicated the the hauntedness of these moments with a family and I cried and I repented so hard mm. as if I was in a camp at seventh grade, you know, and cause I didn't have a grid for that. I didn't have a grid for like seeing God at work mm. in just my relationship, my wife yeah. and kids, I was doing this 24 seven prayer stuff and trying to get everybody mm -hmm. to come to a prayer room for 24 hours at a time and really monastic. And that stuff is good. Like I, I, I hope people even hear what you're saying. I, I don't, I don't hear yeah, cynicism yeah. in what you're saying or hurt. It's just kind of dealing with the reality of it and, mm -hmm. and, and all of its, all of its multifaceted layers. But I, I started to realize, yeah. I don't know if I actually can see God in the place where I live most of my life. And one of the things mm. I think that that's been unique about the charismatic tradition again has been like calling you to these mystical experiences. But sometimes again, for me, it's been this escape vehicle and, and much of the music that's come out of these traditions, um, especially around that time where I noticed like you were starting to emerge on scene, whatever that means. Sorry, man. Um, <laughs> you know, like you, good. people were learning and discovering your stuff was that a lot of the other stuff that was coming out was, really focused on, you know, sort of transcendent experiences, God and transcendence. But I felt like one of the things I was like, man, this guy's doing something different because I felt like you were actually drawing people's attention. Yes, to like, you can have this transcendent experience of God, but I also felt like you were drawing people's attention to God being in the imminent and the, and the here and now too, like both of them together. Was that an intentional decision early on? Uh, how did that value get shaped in you from like the lyrics to the song arrangement? How, how do you marry that sense of God being transcendent with God being imminent in like the life you live with your wife and your kids? Well, oh man, I, I don't know like where that started, you know, but from very early on, I remember thinking like, I hate these ideas of sacred and secular. I've always hated those ideas. Part of it was because I had a lot of good friends who weren't believers in high school. And uh, I liked a lot of music and, you know, and people said it was evil. I'm like, how is this evil? I was like, this, it's, it's you know, I was like, it, it's not doing, it's not making me <laughs> evil, <laughs> you know. I was like, and when you get deeper, you're like, then you realize all the Christian music like, is literally just pulling from all of this evil music, right? Right, right. I was like, so, oh, you, you did, I listened to your podcast on that. That was excellent, <laughs> oh, by the way. So. You know, but, but I had, and when you said that, I was like, oh, man. I was like, exactly. Like, DC like, Talk doesn't you exist without Nirvana. Yeah, yeah. And, and, but, and beyond that, and so it's, it's even crazy. To me, it's even deeper than that. And Nirvana doesn't exist without the Pixies. 
and without Led Zeppelin. And Led Zeppelin doesn't exist without Robert Johnson. Robert Johnson doesn't exist without, um, you know, Southern Gospel and the, the blues, you know, yeah, Southern Gospel yeah. doesn't exist without the, um, you know, the West African slaves who came over on Spanish ships who pick up the Spanish influence of the guitar, but they bring their, you know, West African. I mean, like, and then it goes back to Mesopotamia. I mean, music is, that's one thing I love so much about music is like, there is no, it, there is no one thing. All music is part of the same big song. And I saw that early on. I saw that early on. And I thought it's really interesting that you're, you're trying, you, you take a bad version of what's happening out there and you want to tell me that that's good and that God's on that. And there was all this language about like, Christians are supposed to be the most creative people in the world. And I was like, yeah, but let's just be honest. <laughs> I'm not seeing it, you know? And so I was like, well, so God has to be doing something outside of my little subculture here, you know? And, I, and so early on, like, I, it just made me kind of, it put me off to feel like um, God had to exist in one sort of situation and that everything else was like worthless. You know, and I'm not really sure where I first stepped into that conversation, you know, but it's the thing that's been with me a long, long time. And so even from the beginning, like, I didn't want to play worship music at churches. I wanted to play at other places, you know. I wanted to play sacred music in unsacred places and play unsacred music in sacred places. You know, I, I don't know. I just, I've always wanted to blur those lines. I really, I wish, I wonder where that comes from. To be honest, I don't know. Maybe part of it has to do with also being a pastor's kid, you know, um, and seeing sort of behind the curtain a little bit, you know. Um, I was going to public school, and I was, you know, a pastor's kid, so I, I wasn't shielded from all the conversations they were having in school, you know. But also, I wasn't sort of like. Um, uh, I wasn't shielded from what actually happens at church either. So I was like, okay. I was like, what happens at church is very similar to what happens outside of church in some ways. Or it can, you know, you have, con you have conversations about finances and people yeah. get mad and people lose their cool and, you know, and so... I really don't know. I wish I had a better answer for you. I feel like I'm letting you no, down. No, you're not letting me down. Like I think it's interesting... Because <laughs> you're in, I feel like you've intuited it more so. I think of some other friends of mine that maybe uh, don't want to say that charismatic tradition doesn't have a rich theological history, but it doesn't necessarily value that life of the mind in the same way that maybe some of the other mm -hmm. traditions do. And, you know, maybe I talked to some of my reformed friends who had this sense of all truth being God's truth, all beauty being God's beauty, and they didn't necessarily experience in the same way this sort of secular sacred division that was still very much part of my experience. And it's interesting. It seems like nobody sat down with you and laid out, you know, I, you mentioned it before, like I did this podcast series on Christ and culture following some of the work of H.R. Niebuhr. But it's like nobody sat down with you and was like, hey, you need to read, you know, Christ and culture by H.R. Niebuhr, John Mark. You were just kind of making these connections intuitively almost and following the, the, the breadcrumbs of the, the questions in your head. I'm curious when you go about and you, you've done this and you, I, it's not just lyrically. And that's, I think one of the mistakes uh, people that have kind of been raised in this sort of secular sacred divide is they, they think it's mm -hmm. always about the lyrics, but I noticed early on, even kind of like the sonic arrangements 
the music that you were creating just in and of itself had this imminent sense to it. So this might lose some people here, but in my head sometimes I have like a category of artists and bands that I go, these are like my imminent artists and bands. They help me (laughs) see God in the world right in front of me. You know, like Bruce Springsteen, right? The music Mm -hmm. is earthy and it's a band playing in a room and he's... You know, even though he's never worked a factory job in his life, you kind of get the sense of like he's telling the blue collar story and you can kind of see goodness in that story. I think of, you know, in country music, someone like a Sturgill Simpson. But then I got this other category in my mind that's like, this is the transcendent stuff, the stuff that kind of takes me out of here and fills me with mystery and wonder. And whether that's, you know, Seeger Rose or Bon Iver or. But then there's some people that somehow marry that together. Mm. You know, early on, you know, you didn't fall into kind of the typical worship format, which has largely been influenced kind of by the U2 Joshua Tree sound, which is very, to me, like the streets of no streets uh, where the streets have no name is that's transcendence to me. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So, that was very much a part of that sort of world. And yet you were like grabbing on to these earthy sounds. And is that is that intentional or is that just, you do that and you're just kind of like, man, this just feels right. It feels like I'm telling a story here that invites people to see God in the here and now. Yep. Well, I think early on, I and even now, I don't think of myself as like a great singer or performer. And so early on, I think I realized, like, if I'm going to matter, then the lyrics need to be, you know, um, good, you know. But, but, and they but are. secretly in my mind, well, yeah. thanks. But secretly in my mind, I wanted the transcendent thing. Like, I wanted the big sound. I wanted to be the, the singer, you know, like uh, when you hear. And, and one interesting thing about the bands you brought up is you can't understand what they're saying. Boney Vare and Sigaros. Pavarotti, like these bands do something to me emotionally, you know, and like I wanted that, but I felt like that was out with out of out of my reach, and so I focused more on lyrics. But it was really funny, even with the lyrics, I still kind of did the same thing. Like I really, it really bothers me when a lyric doesn't feel right, you know. For instance, like, uh, and most people don't think about this, but. Every word has a cadence, has a rhythm, and you have a couple of vowels, and it has a tonality to it, right? And so, like, you can't just take a melody and say what you want to say by putting those words on top of the melody. It doesn't work very well, you know? Um, And some people are more apt to try that than others, you know? But for me, it was always like, well, if the word feels right, because the word itself is uh, has a percussive nature to it, you know, like um, you sing on the vowels and the constants are percussion, like literally, that's not even a metaphor, like that's legitimately, when you go to singing, um, you know, vocal class, they teach you to sing on the vowels because you don't really sing the consonants, you don't sing, you sing on the vowels, right? So the vowels are the melody and the consonants are the rhythm, you know, and so every word has that in it. And also every word has sort of a meaning in the sense of like, well, this is what the dictionary says. But then a lot of times words have baggage and you can give a word, you can assign meaning to a word by the way you use the word also. 
So like, even though I, I knew I had to major on the lyrics, like I feel like I was still trying to evoke emotion with the way the words sound. And even now I do the same. There are many times if you read my lyrics, you're like, that doesn't make sense. I was like, no, but it sounds awesome, mm. you know? And it makes you feel this way. So I think I was trying to do both things kind of at the same time. One seemed more within my grasp as the other seemed without, but I think I was using one to reach for the other, if that makes sense. And I really, early on, all those bands, I listened to them all the time. Bob Dylan, Springsteen, Sigaros, Bon Iver, uh, U2, when I was very young, you know, I listened to a lot of them. And I, I would sit there and think about the greater things, right? Yes. Listening to where the streets have no name. Think about the unknown, you know, and... I, on the airplane, I love listening to Bon Iver because, you know, the music makes me feel something, you know. Um, I mean, at the same time, I like to say that um, a word is, ever, is, is never more than the sheen on top of meaning, right? Say more you about know? that. Yeah, so, like, you know what it's like to have a word on the tip of your tongue. And, you know, it's like you know what the word means but you just don't have the momentary ability to articulate it. But it doesn't mean that the meaning isn't there. And that's probably the biggest argument I get into people when it comes to worship music, which is really funny because I feel like I agree with a lot of people and people, people like want to argue that worship music is shallow. And it's like, well, modern worship music as a whole may be shallow, but they want to tell me why it's shallow and I always disagree. You know, I, a lot of people want to tell me that modern worship is shallow because that uh, the theology is bad. I'm like, well, but but when they talk about theology, they're talking about the language. Yes. I'm like, I don't think that it's, I don't think you replace the words and it's going to make the song deeper. You know, I, I feel like the, a lot of the, a lot of the writers don't, aren't fully bought into what they're saying. Not that they're not believers, but I feel like they're writing something they feel like they have to write. You know, and so that's what I mean when I say that the, a word is just the sheen on top of me. Words matter, and I like words, but I do think a lot of times we get really caught up in sort of the informational yes, side, the of like language. the cognitive side, yeah. right, versus the intuitive, and they actually are like neurologically different pathways in our yeah. brain. And I do think one of the, if we could go back to like maybe our shared charismatic background, one of the strengths I would say is this developing of the intuitive. Now, the yeah. downside of it was that we maybe checked our cognitive and prefrontal cortex at the door sometimes. But this yeah. intuitive thing, mm -hmm. and I you know, I think one of the things that's so interesting about I've never heard, you know, there might be people that don't like your music, right? They might not like it. I've never heard somebody go, but that guy doesn't that guy doesn't sound like he believes what he's doing. <laughs> you know? There have been a few. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, Over I'm the sure years. you have. I'm sure you have a few trolls yeah. along the way. But, you know, but. it's interesting because, yeah, like you have a lyric, uh, I think on the last record, like, you always find me in between the thunder and the lightning. I don't even, like, if I were to break that down just cognitively, I don't, I'm not sure, like, I fully get it. And yet the combination of that idea, you're grabbing this. And this takes back to maybe some of the other things I've talked about in this podcast about how the aesthetic, our aesthetic creations are always like a visible manifestation of this like invisible world, right? Mm -hmm. and, and whether people yeah. are fine with 
like a world that's actually spiritual in some sort of Christian sense or whether it's just psychological, those values are invisible and they, they don't come into the world aside from how we create them in the world. And I think one of the things I've really appreciated is that you're somehow able to just, these values that I can, that you have are, are clearly like made manifest in your music. And it, mm. it points me to a God who is both so far beyond anything I can see, can see and conceive. And yet when I listen something else, I go, yeah, I'm looking for you in between the thunder and the lightning too, you know? <laughs> we had a lightning storm here in the Twin Cities in Minneapolis last night, just one of those like summer lightning storms, right? No thunder at all. And the mm -hmm. kids and I were looking out the windows and they're like, you know, doing the thing where, well, you're, we got to listen for the thunder and then we got to count how many seconds between the thunder and the lightning so we can figure <laughs> out how far, it, but they couldn't hear the thunder. And I'm sitting there thinking about listening and I'm going, I'm here with my kids in this, actually, you know, it's so simple, but it, I didn't think of this mm -hmm. as a holy moment, you know, 15 yeah, years yeah. ago. And now now it is. And so uh, looking mm -hmm. back on your, your yeah. discography and, you know, maybe all the songs you've written, which songs do you see as best capturing this feeling of, I can see God in the here and now in my mess and my joys, et cetera. <laughs> and yet I can also see that God is something so far beyond anything I can conceive of, but I want to discover mm. more. Which ones, just for you, as you listen back to your own music, you go, man, I think I caught both of those in these songs the best. <laughs> Gosh, that's a difficult question. That's a difficult question, but the moment you were just talking about uh, the um, the nothing stands between us, that was definitely one of those like really special songs. You know, like I I felt like I was struggling that whole record to say something, and that song I finally felt like I said it. You know, um, and and so maybe I would go with that particular song. That's a super special song to me, but that. In section specifically, I think speaks to what you're saying here. It's sort of like the thunder and the lightning are larger than life. They're you know, they're bigger than me. Yeah. And as a person who has spent most of his life making a living from making loud noises and shining bright lights on people, you know, it uh that it was really important to me to um find a god who could meet me in between those things right cuz we talk about the charismatic experience and it's very precious to me i <laughs> it's easy to be negative about it because i've been in it right and i can be real negative about all the other streams too i got an awesome list <laughs> you know but <laughs> You know, um, but for me, it was like coming from the charismatic thing where everything is big, is go hard, go big, change the world, big, important, big, important, climb the mountain, save the world, do the thing, meet the God, like ride the wave, gold teeth, <laughs> uh, power, lightning, yeah. rage like thunder, like <laughs> preach, the, preach the pain off the walls and bring the power. It was like, oh, it, it was so 
It was such a relief for me to learn how to be found in between those places. You know, and sensationalism is not only a charismatic thing. You know, I was thinking about this today. Like, that's one of my things. The char- You know, like, man, I feel like I'm being really... Uh, critical but you know if we are you know we can we can turn and and i feel like it's okay to be critical because i'm being critical of myself too you know um but sensationalism the skate patch culture and the avoidance culture are um such big um temptations in the charismatic world you know um but the sensationalism of have to perform a miracle i was like and i i told my wife this one time i was like It's like I'm making a record that I love right now. And Mercury Lightning record, I'm like, and uh, (laughs) I'm so emotional right now, bro. It's like I'm making a record that I love. Like, why do I feel like everyone's going to be disappointed if I don't pull a rabbit out of a hat? You know? And that's charismatic world. It's like, you got to pull rabbits out of hats, you know? And I was like, I'm tired of trying to pull a rabbit out of a hat. You know, like, I don't know how I wrote some of my biggest songs. Like, they were all happy accidents, you know. And I don't really live in the shadow of that, to be honest. I, um, but it, to a point, it was so hard to finish records because I felt like I was waiting to pull a rabbit out of a hat. And I was like, you know what? God is in this with me. It's like, And that's one thing I learned with Mercury and Lightning. Like, I can just create a record about what I'm going through, and God is in it. And that... Final, <laughs> final statement, you always find me in between the thunder and the lightning, you know, is kind of become my motto. Like, uh, I'm okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. I really am. I'm okay without all the stuff. I'm okay. I, I want to pull a rabbit out of a hat. And I want to do the rain dance and watch the weather change. Like, I, I want to be the big shot. Like, I want to walk out on the stage. Like, I want to be all those things, but I'm okay if I don't have any of those things, you know? And not only that, like, I may be okay. Um, I may be better off without some of that stuff, right? You know, so the bright lights and the loud noises. <laughs> what were you doing? If we're going to start cut open, cutting open some yeah. veins here, it's so important, man, because, you know, that ex- that feeling of like never quite measuring up to yeah. the holy men that you've seen. And then you start mm-hmm. seeing maybe there's some chinks in the armor and you could either get mm-hmm. really disillusioned, but still somewhere in there you've been you've been kind of like programmed because worship isn't mm-hmm. just like talking to God. It shapes our thoughts about him. And you've had your whole life shaped, your thoughts shaped in this particular direction, like meaningful, purposeful life looks like the extraordinary and doing the miraculous. And I remember realizing I couldn't do it when I'm in a super charismatic context and, you know, people are, you know, the worship's going really, really long, but at home, like my wife and I are arguing my, you know, my firstborn, my firstborn son is, had uh, some health issues that I I couldn't pray away, you know, Um, in the hospital, uh, you know, I sit, you know, thank God there's been, he's experienced some relief and he's, you know, he's almost 11 years old now, but he was real young. A list of things. It wasn't cancer or anything like that, but it was a list of things that I felt like, I felt like a failure because I wasn't able, and my wife and I both, we both wrestled with this coming from that context. It was like, 
couldn't make this thing better. Yeah. You know, where are you, God? Are you here with us in this? And to have mm. music like yours, that's not going, no, that stuff doesn't matter. And I don't, I don't know how you communicate it, man, but I think you, I think you do somehow communicate that. And it's not just, again, in the lyrics, like you're saying, it's the whole picture, it's the whole aesthetic of your work that, that, on one side, you know, the philosopher Charles Taylor called it, you know, feeling trapped within the imminent frame. That's what so much of us have experienced because our consciousness has shifted in the Western world to think that all that's in front of us is the stuff that's just right there, the material world. There's mm-hmm. nothing more. And yet yeah. we feel haunted by transcendence. That's why even on whatever promo thing I put on, I grabbed one of your lyrics. I don't I don't <laughs> want to feel unhaunted. Yeah. And yet we have to allow ourselves to feel that haunting that the, the yeah. yes, there's the stuff right in front of us and that's sacred. And yet there's like this mystery that calls us beyond. And I don't want to lose either, either one of those things, you know, for, for the Christians, our age, John Mark, that were taught, you know, this kind of division between the secular and the sacred, the two different boxes, mm-hmm. two different purposes. And, you know, if we're going to get down to like the functionality of what you do, there's really two different venues that you get to share art mm-hmm. in. If it's, yeah, I really consider what you do like incarnational or sacramental art. It doesn't fit neatly in those boxes. How hard has it been to stay committed to your values and risk being an outsider in both of those camps? When on one side, you probably have heard voices that are like, Dude, just do records full of singable church songs. And on the other side, people will probably go, if you just cut out King of My Heart from this record, you could totally fit in here. I know this has got to be a struggle, man. I, I don't want to project it on you, but I, I can't imagine. Actually, I can imagine because, you know, when I was younger <laughs> and music was primary my thing, you know, and I looked to some of these guys, I looked to you and I was like, boy... Who's somebody, if I'm going to keep doing music like vocationally and professionally, what do I want it to look like? And I looked at that and I told Adam Russell this. And then I looked, I was like, I don't have what it takes to do what a guy like John Mark is doing. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I have the intestinal fortitude to keep holding on to my values. I don't want to project on you. Maybe you're just like, no, it's been sure. easy, but I have to imagine it's been hard. What... How how have you stayed committed to your values and just lived with the possibility of being rejected on either side? Oh, man. Uh, So it is definitely hard. It's hard for a lot of reasons. Um, For one is the the temptation, you know, the, the money temptation. I mean, I like money like everyone else does. And before you know what works, it's easy not to do it. And once you know what works, it's sort of like, ooh, I just wrote, you know, this song, um, you know, that's maybe been one of the biggest worship songs for the past 20 years. And I know I could use that to write more songs like that to make a lot of money, you know. But anytime I sit down and I think, well, I'm going to try, I'm like so bored. I'm like... You know, I, I texted a friend the other day. <laughs> I texted this to Adam Russell, actually. Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if I should read this or not. But I'm sure, Adam wouldn't. I texted Adam be fine and, with it. No, he wouldn't. I texted him and said, "Adam, I was like, I hate writing worship songs." 
It's like, I don't hate worship songs, but I hate writing them because I feel this pressure to take all of this bigness, all this transcendence and squeeze it into lyrics that a child is supposed to understand. Actually, children probably understand even better because they understand things more intuitively. I got to squeeze it into this, whatever that the simplest person is supposed to understand. I was like, that is an impossible task. It's literally impossible. You either fall on one side or the other. You either fall on the side of no one understanding what you're saying, or you fall on the side of being so simple that it comes across as super trite. And so that's been my problem, sit down and write a worship song without it sounding trite. It's just very, very hard, you know? And, um, and I do like worship songs. I do like worship music, you know? But I don't know what it is. I don't know what's wrong with me, <laughs> but I've never... <laughs> and maybe this is one of the positive things. Yeah. That maybe this is one of the super positive things I got from my sort of super charismatic upbringing. It's one thing is we used to, we used to feel like if the Lord wants you to do it, do it no matter what. That's right. That the consequences don't matter if the Lord has called you. And I felt like at one point, and maybe it just stuck with me, that like I felt at one point that like, I have to do what I feel like I'm called to do or um, I'm gonna die. You know, like I have, to, I have to stay true because the Lord has called me to this. I don't even know that I have that thought anymore, but I just feel inside of me if I write a lyric or a song that I don't believe, I feel like it's such a waste, you know? Like, I, I feel like my, my, I have a couple of rules. One rule is that it has to be believable, and the only way I know if what I'm saying is believable is if I believe it first. So if I'm writing a song that I don't believe, not maybe that I don't believe the subject matter, but if I'm not presenting it in a believable manner, I just can't finish it. I just can't stick with it, you know? Um... So I, I guess that's been uh, like my biggest challenge. I have like three major issues in my life, and this is one of the three. The three challenges is that like I know that I could be playing bigger venues and I could be making lots of money if I took advantage of the opportunity that I have with this big worship song. But at the same time, like it's just really hard to not pursue these other sort of ideas. What about the pull know? on the more. other side, though? You know, because you probably would have maybe more, <laughs> we used to, you know, mainstream or, you know, to use the 80s, 90s label, you'd have more secular access, you know, if you probably yeah. cut out something like King of My Heart or... Well, so... What keeps you from doing um, that? Pre... Well, the internet. <laughs> the internet's undefeated. The internet. No, um, I mean, I'm being a little whatever here. But, but that's part of it is, you know, like I, I want to, I, I have at times tried to pursue, you know, general market radio. And I actually had one song that was going to get picked up by a really big station. And the way it works in radio is you go after one important station. When they start playing it, the other stations will start playing it. When they start playing it, you go to the third tier stations or whatever, you know. Because music is kind of like real estate. It's sort of like there's no way to say how much something is worth. It, it's really all perceived value. Like my land is worth what it is because it's next to other 
houses that someone has decided are worth X, Y, Z. So like music is like that, but it's even crazier because no one really knows what a song's worth. No one really knows what a good song is. There's no way to, to quantify it, right? And so if someone values it, they use that to pitch it to the other people because no one wants to be the radio station that's not playing your song. So really big radio station was ready to play the song. And the guy Googled me and saw a bunch of my worship stuff. And he was like, uh, I love your video. I love your song. He's like, but I will not promote you. He's like, I will not do this. I will not play you on my radio station. You know, and that was a huge bummer. I think I realized that day that, um, you know, the blessing of the success of those other songs was going to be a curse in the in the other world and that I was going to have to live in this in-between world. But, you know, I think that it's good. I think I was always called to be there, you know, in between the cracks. I was always called to exist in that brackish water between yeah. sacred and secular, you know. And to be honest, like songs, I love songs like King of My Heart and How He Loves. Like I'm not, those are not bad songs in my opinion. I'm not putting those songs down. Um, and honestly, those songs have made enough money that they've at times given me the opportunity to explore. There's a lot of people can't, um, they don't have, um, you know, they don't have the privilege of writing weird music, you know, because music is expensive. It's expensive to make music. And um, and we've been really blessed that those songs have given us the opportunity to do um, things that we really believe in, whether or not they had a, a great financial end game, you know. So it's really been a great journey. I'm I'm willing to own both sides of the of the coin, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's difficult, and there's the temptation there to do what I know works. Um, and every day I feel like I have that conversation with myself, Yeah, you know? Well, if you got time for one more question, John Mark. Yes. Okay. Well, um, so far in your journey, right? Evangelical, charismania, 80s, 90s, charismatic conference culture. (laughs) You've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly of music industry Mm -hmm. and Christian music industry in your adult life. You're looking ahead here towards your 40s. I actually think I, I looked, just to make sure I could do the um, your bio properly, uh, we've got the we share a birthday, I believe, uh, not in the same year, really? yeah, November twenty seventh, right? <laughs> Bruce Lee and Jimi Hendrix and Adam Cates. You know Adam Cates and too, Adam right? Cates. Yep. Yes, I do. Yep. I totally yep. do. Okay, so you know, you're looking ahead to your forties. You've lived a yep. a good deal of life so far. What is for you the hardest question? about God that you are still on a journey on and maybe one thing that's emerged out of your journey, you feel more confident than ever about God. So, wait, so say that yeah, again. It's two, two questions. questions. Or... The first one's like, what's what's the hardest question? Like you, you are still processing and on a journey to discover about God. And the second thing, and you could answer them in either order, what is What's the thing that, you know, you've lived this much of your life and you go, I, I feel more confident than ever about, about God in this area? Well, so uh, when I was a kid, from, the, <laughs> from as long as I can remember, I've been obsessed with what happens after you die. You know, and that's been something I've thought of every day. Not in a dark way. I'm not a dark person, you know, but I, you know, but I think about dying every day. Just, you know, it's, it's reality. So, you know, from early on, that was a huge question 
for me. And I really liked that that question got answered in church. That really helped me out. So the most difficult question, and first of all, I actually do, I believe in the afterlife. I believe in heaven when you die. I, I don't believe that it looks anything like what's been communicated to us. You know, I think it's so different that we have no, we have no context for whatsoever. But so the most difficult question for me has been, what if I'm wrong? Because I've been wrong about it a lot, <laughs> right? I've been wrong about a lot of things. What if I'm wrong? And what if there is no afterlife? Is Jesus still good enough for me to want to follow the path? <laughs> and the thing I'm convinced of is yes, <laughs> I totally am. Wow. I totally am. I believe in the afterlife, but I don't, I don't go to Jesus for the afterlife. Um, I mean, I want to. Yeah. I want the afterlife too, you know. But uh, no, but I'm I'm willing to pursue Jesus even without the promise of the afterlife. So that might you answer know, the second I, part of it: is you feel more <laughs> confident than ever that Jesus is worth it. <laughs> Why? Exactly. Why 100%. is that? <laughs> Why is that? Jesus is worth it. Why is Jesus worth it? Yeah. Because I believe that. Um, Oh, man, why is Jesus worth it? I mean, it doesn't have to be I, like a doctrinal statement know. here either, you know? I believe that the Jesus way is the better way now and the better way later. And if there's no later, it's still the better way now. I didn't mean to throw the whatever. People get really weird and you're like, wait, there might not be an afterlife. Like, look, I, I'm counting right, on the right, afterlife right. here. But, you know, like when I wake up in the middle of the night, I'm like, I've been wrong about so much in my life. Why do I expect to be right about that too, you know? Um, but yeah, I think the Jesus way is the better way. I think over and over when you look at the way Jesus lived and things that he said, it's actually better. It's not magic. You don't get a badge for forgiveness. Forgiveness is better for you and better for the other person. You know, um, loving your neighbor is better for you and better for the other person. Um, laying your life down is actually better for you and it's better for everyone else. You know, I don't, I don't, some of the most miserable people in the world are people who don't understand the joy of, of giving, you know? Um, and so, you know, love is better. It's the better way. So at least I'm convinced of it. I'm totally convinced that love is the better way. And that the Jesus version of love is the best version of love. And that uh, Jesus is the very best approach to God, in my personal <laughs> opinion. Well, you do a good job of presenting that in a way that doesn't feel as if you're bashing people over the head at, at a concert. It really does feel like an invitation into something mysterious and beautiful. So I'm so thankful. And you're, you're working on a new record, right? Uh, you know, yep. I promised mm -hmm. somebody on Twitter I'd ask, I'd pull a, one of the best questions people, you know, had for you. And somebody asked, is there going to be a Hope Anthology Volume 2? You know, going back to your <laughs> first record. Is that what this next one's going to be called? But you, you are in the midst of <laughs> probably something. Not. Yeah, probably not. Yep. Yeah, I'm in the midst of wrapping up a record. So new singles will come out um, on surprise day. Oh yeah. Can I go like, man, <laughs> I, break, I, I got to break, uh, the news on, on my, my podcast of these announcements, <laughs> but I'll, I'll let you do that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. There'll be new music this awesome. year though. So awesome. Well, I'm thankful for it, John Mark. And I, I sincerely, 
you know, I know the journey to this point has not been easy and the temptation on either side to just follow the money or do the easy thing. Um, and I get it. Like I've been in ministry and a lot of it has been music ministry for quite some time. And, uh, there's a, when you got a wife and kids, it's one thing if you're just doing this by yourself, you got a wife and kids, um, saying no to things comes at much more of a price. But I'm thankful because you've got a voice that I still could turn people to and go, you know, I think you could find God in between the thunder and the lightning. Listen to this. (laughs) So on that. Oh, man, I... I hope yeah. so, man. Thank you for saying well, that. Well, thanks, John Mark. I appreciate you being gracious with your time, and um, we'll talk again soon. Yeah, man. I loved it. Well, I realize many of you may be tuning in and listening today, having never listened to this podcast before, maybe just because you're a fan of John Mark's music. And so I want to welcome you here if you're curious about what this podcast is all about. Um, my name is Paul Anleitner, and I, I've developed this program to help people explore theology and the intersection of theology with philosophy, science, arts, and culture. And so if you are processing questions, if you're going through a journey of maybe even what you might consider deconstruction, I hope that you would maybe scroll through some of the previous episodes and and take a listen to some of the other things. We've got guests on here that are all over the map from theologians to songwriters like John Mark. And then I try to intersperse between some of the conversations, uh, maybe some, I don't know if you want to call them lectures, but uh, try to introduce people to ideas that I experienced in the world of academic theology as uh, someone who spent a, a bit of time teaching and has uh, has a has a degree in a, a master's in Christian thought. And so I, I try to help people that maybe aren't going to give themselves totally to the going to seminary or to getting a PhD in theology to at least try to maybe expose people to some of the ideas and conversations that are happening in that world and to try to do it in a way that is hopefully accessible for people that are, yeah, at least, you know, on some level interested in the subject matter and wanting to learn and grow, but maybe aren't going to sit down and read a PhD level book. And so hopefully you check out some of the other episodes. If you enjoy this episode and you enjoy the podcast, one of the best ways you can help other people find it is just by simply leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, You don't have to give it five stars if you don't think it's worth five stars. I'm not searching for a compliment. What I really hope to do is just help other people that are really looking for help in the questions that they are wrestling with to find a place that maybe they could have a fresh perspective or uh, to be able to answer some of their, their tougher questions. So thanks for leaving a review. You can also get involved by uh, becoming a member on Patreon. We have a growing Patreon community where there are some unique perks for people that want to contribute that way. And I'm so thankful to the those in the Patreon community, uh, people like Paul, Sam, and Elizabeth who have made extra contributions to make episodes like this possible. 
can't do it without you guys. So you can follow the links in the descriptions if you want to discover more about any of that stuff. And please go check out John Mark's music. Find him on his next tour. I know he's got a new record coming out. And I assume he will probably tour after that. Go out and support him on those uh, in the streaming age. Without the tours, it's it's hard to make a living. <laughs> Not going to speak on his behalf, but I know I know the business. So go out buy some of his records. He does have vinyl and stuff like that, and find a way of supporting him on his next tour stop. So thank you guys. It was great talking with John Mark. If you have follow up questions, objections, disagreements, we welcome all that stuff. You can bring them to me on Twitter. You can leave a comment on this episode. So thanks guys. Until next time.